chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Mordecai became aware of all that had been done, he tore his garments and put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city crying out in a loud and bitter voice. But he went no further than the king's gate, for no one was permitted to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Throughout each and every providence where the king's edict and law were announced, there was considerable mourning among the Jews, along with fasting, weeping, and sorrow. Sackcloth and ashes were characteristic of many. When Esther's female attendants, her eunuchs, came and informed her about Mordecai's behavior, the queen was overcome with anguish. Although she sent garments for Mordecai to put on so they could remove his sackcloth, he would not accept them. So Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, and had been placed at her service, instructed him to find the cause and the reason for Mordecai's behavior. So Hathak went to Mordecai at the plaza in the city in front of the king's gate. So all, everybody's freaked out. The Jews are fasting. This is supposed to be a time of celebration, a time of remembrance of God's deliverance. And now they're fasting, they're mourning, they're ripping their clothes and putting ashes on, and the, all the Jews are disheveled. Now Mordecai is always out in front of the gates, and he must be somewhere where Esther can see him from some kind of window or kind of stuff. And even though Esther's queen, remember, no one is absolutely 100% free. The minute you say yes to something, that immediately puts shackles on your lives. Right? The minute I say yes to marrying somebody, I am shackled from doing other things. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to refer to my wife as a ball and chain or something. I'm just using a metaphor here. Okay, but I'm shackled. There are certain things that single people can do and have the freedom to do that is not immoral that I don't have the freedom to do as a married person. The minute you say yes to having kids, you become shackled even more and freedoms and that kind of stuff. The minute you say yes to your job, your job shackles with you with hours and duties and responsibilities and dress codes or whatever, that kind of stuff. And the only thing you do is say no to it and then you're shackled by unemployment and, and not having a job and not being able to pay bills. So there's nothing, there's no such thing as absolute freedom. And so even though Esther has become this queen, you would think, wow, she's powerful and she has the freedom to do whatever she wants. She doesn't. She is regulated to the palace. She can't leave the palace. She is never allowed to leave the palace unless the king gives permission. And that's a huge ordeal to go through. And then there's this huge escort of guards and attendants and that kind of stuff. But she, she, she can't just go out anymore and just frolic through the streets on her own anymore. And so she can't go to Mordecai to find out what's happening. So the only thing she could do is maybe get Mordecai into her presence. Now even that's a huge ordeal to get Mordecai in. But one of the things that's going to make it absolutely impossible for Mordecai to get into the palace is he doesn't look fitting to be into the palace. His clothes are ripped and he has ashes on his head and there's no way that that can enter into the king's palace. We don't want any unhappiness to ever come into my palace and touch me and ruin my drinking spree. And so that's not allowed. So she gives him new clothes, says, hey, put these on so we can talk. And Mordecai refuses. He refuses to be dressed up and his sorrow to be downplayed just so they can get into the palace. So she has to now send a servant that will go back and forth. And so... I remember when I was a kid, I was just thought this was a conversation between the two of them, and I didn't realize, wow, there's actually a servant that's ping-ponging ball back and forth between them in this conversation as they go on. So the servant goes out to him and asks him what's going on. Verse 6, 
So Hakath went to Mordecai at the plaza of the city in front of the king's gate. And then Mordecai related to him everything that had happened to him, even the specific amount of money that Haman and offered to pay the king's treasuries for the Jews to be destroyed. He's got amazing little birdies. Because this was a private conversation between Haman and the king. And yet Mordecai knows the exact same amount that he offered. Even the king never accepted that money in any kind of way. So that would make it even harder to know this. He also gave him a written copy of the law that had been disseminated in Susa for the destruction so that he could show it to Esther and talk to her about it. He also gave instructions that she should go to the king to implore him and petition him on behalf of her people. So Haggath returned and related Mordecai's instructions to Esther. Now this shows you how isolated she is because she doesn't even know this edict has gone out. She's in the same palace and the same wing of the palace that the king is, and she has no idea what's going on outside in the world. She's completely isolated from the culture and the news, and this wouldn't be uncommon. A lot of times the wives would be completely isolated from what's going on in the empire and that kind of stuff, so that nothing would affect their mood in a negative way in any kind of a sense or depress them, so that when the king wanted to be with them, she wouldn't bring him down in any kind of a way. Because remember, the kings never want to be brought down. Remember when um, Nehemiah was like sad in front of the king and he was serving him and the king figured out that he was sad and he was like, why are you sad? And then Nehemiah began to freak out because sad people in the king's presence usually die because the king doesn't want sad people to make him sad. So this is, this is a very scary place to live. You're walking on eggshells if you have any negative emotions. My daughters would not survive in that palace. <laughs> he goes back to tell Esther, and then Esther's going to send the information back to Mordecai, verse 10. Then Esther replied to Hakath, Hathak, with instructions for Mordecai. All the servants of the king and the people of the king's providence know that there is only one law applicable to any man or a woman who comes uninvited to the king in the inner court. That person will be put to death unless the king extends to him the gold scepter, permitting him to be spared. Now I have not been invited to the king to come to the king for some thirty days. Mordecai says, I want you to go to the king, and I want you to speak on our behalf to save us. There's three great obstacles to Esther speaking on behalf of the Jews to saving. One, I forgot to mention this. The first obstacle is the fact that this is a law that cannot be overturned. Remember that one of the things that the reason we're told about Vashti is not only is Vashti's dethroning important to explain why Esther is into the palace, but it's also important to help you understand that laws cannot be overturned. Once a law is given in the Persian Empire, it cannot be changed in any kind of way. So there's literally no way to overturn this law. The second obstacle is you can't go into the king's presence uninvited. If he doesn't send for you, you don't come. If you come and he didn't send for you, you're probably going to die. You're probably going to die. The third obstacle is the king has no idea that she's Jewish in any kind of way. Now, she only mentions the obstacle of coming into the king's presence because that's the one that directly affects her. The, the law that can't be overturned is not going to affect her in any kind of way because nobody knows she's Jewish. The fact that she's Jewish won't affect her in any kind of way because no one knows she's Jewish. 
But the one that's going to directly affect her life and put her at risk is going into the king's presence, uninvited. And you're like, oh, but would he really kill her just because she walked in? Um, let's look at what's happened in the first previous three chapters. And the answer is, yeah, probably, if he's in such a mood. Here's what's also significant. She has not been brought into his presence for the last 30 days. She has not seen her husband, who she is the head queen over the empire in the last 30 days, because he hasn't thought about her. That's not much of a marriage. (laughs) All studies show that you need to have like regular daily connection with your spouse. Unless there's like some extraordinary like road trip or vacation or kind of stuff. But you need at least once a week have it like at least two dates with them. Like two intentional encounters in some kind of sense. In order to have a healthy marriage thrive for a long period of time. And he hasn't seen her for 30 days. But remember, he didn't marry her for a relationship. So he hasn't even... Now... We know if, you, if he hasn't sent for her, then he's not really thinking about her. He doesn't really want If he's thinking about her and he wants her, he will send for her. He's the king. He gets whatever he wants. So there's been no connection, no communication, no contact in any kind of way for the last 30 days. This is going to be incredibly risky to go into his presence because it could mean that he's lost favor with her. Or, sorry, she's lost favor with him. And she doesn't know why. Granted, remember, this guy's an alcoholic. He's always drinking. He's always partying. And he has a harem of thousand women at least. So he has been seeing women on a regular basis for the last 30 days. It just hasn't been Esther. So this isn't like your modern-day American thing where the husband is just like a workaholic and you never see him, he never talks to you because all he cares about is work or something like that. This is a guy who just doesn't have a place for you anymore for the last 30 days because he's found other interests to occupy him. This is a huge risk for her to go to the king uninvited. Now, there was one thing. If he extended his favor and said, okay, I will exonerate you because I actually want to see you, that's the exception. There's no record anywhere in any historical records throughout the ancient world of the king actually doing this. Most of the time, the kings just get angry and kill people. There's not really much record. That doesn't mean this never has happened because we know that most things weren't recorded or they didn't survive. But we have records of kings killing people. We don't have a lot of records. We don't have any records of people showing grace or extending exceptions. Verse 12, when Esther's reply was conveyed to Mordecai, he said to take back this answer to Esther. Don't imagine that because you are part of the king's household, you will be the one Jew who will escape. If you keep quiet at this time, liberation and protection for the Jews will appear from another source. While you and your father's household perish, it may very well be that you have achieved royal status for such a time as this. Now, we already talked about this, but why he never mentions God here when this is the most perfect opportune time to bring God into the picture and the conversation completely baffles me and baffles like everybody else, too. But what he does, he starts off and says this, look. With a massive project like this that goes throughout 127 providences, 
and employs the services of every single official in the empire, and every single citizen has permission to wipe out any Jew that they want, and it has the backing of the king, don't think that eventually you're not going to be found out. Okay, somebody somewhere knows who you are. Your identity is not that. Now, Mordecai is not threatening her, like, if you don't do this, I'll expose her to a Jew, because he loves her. He's like a father to her. But what he is saying is not that I'm threatening you, that I'll expose you, but don't think that you won't be exposed eventually. I will protect your identity because I love you. But there's no way this massive of project of extermination with this much force and this many people behind it that you're going to go unnoticed. So basically his first argument is either way you're going to die. If you go into the king's presence, he's not in a good mood, you're going to die. If you don't go in the king's presence, you're going to die. The first one has the potential that he might extend favor to you. The second one, it's probably very unlikely that you're going to be able to escape, that you're going to be able to keep your identity that hidden, especially when you're being your own entire people group are being massacred. Can you imagine trying to hide those emotions all the time and then not getting out why you're so sad? So he says that that's not going to happen. Second argument that he makes is, Listen, somehow, somewhere, somebody's going to step up and save us somehow. Now, I don't know if he's thinking God. Most likely he might be in some kind of a way. Maybe Mordecai's not mentioning God because he doesn't really believe that God will save them because God didn't save them from the Assyrians and the Babylonians, though that's clearly explained why, and the prophets. But maybe he just knows that the Jews have a long history of escaping impossible odds when it comes to death and extermination and he either believes that Yahweh is behind that and for whatever reason is not mentioning that or he believes that the Jews are just incredibly lucky incredibly fortunate I mean even today in America I mean most people that I know who have this diehard Americanism they don't believe oh nothing bad will happen in America and America will be great and strong forever because God is with us they usually just believe because we're that great uh, America is this amazing country. No country has ever existed like that. And we're never going to die or die out or collapse in any kind of way because we're Americans. Even when the World Trade Towers fell and were attacked, nobody. it was a perfect opportunity to get on our knees, surrender before God, and repent of our sins and trust in Him. But instead they said, we all, they've awakened the sleeping giant and we will never be caught off guard ever again. So you don't have to believe in God to think that there's no way that you're not going to be saved somehow. So we don't know what his motivation is. We don't know what's driving him. We don't know who he's thinking or what he's thinking about the Savior. But his argument is the Jews always find a way to survive. Whether he believes it's Yahweh or chance or luck or, or their own intuitive success, I don't know. The third argument he makes is perhaps this is why you ended up in the palace. Perhaps this is the very reason that you came into the palace for this very moment in order to save the Jews. Now, he's right in every single way. He's absolutely right in every single way. Even if we don't fully understand why he believes this, he's right in every single way. Now, his argument must have been convincing. Because in verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who were found in Susa and fast on my behalf. Don't eat and don't drink for three days, night or day. 
My female attendants and I will also fast in the same way, and afterward I will go to the king, even though it violates the law. If I perish, I will perish. So Mordecai set out to do everything that Esther had instructed him. At this point, Esther, a new side of her is revealed. Esther is the woman who just is doing everything she can to survive. And she is seeking to please the king and get into the palace. She dutifully obeys Mordecai's instructions and goes as commands. And everything has been about her comfort and everything has about, been about her survival. And that's everything we've seen about her has been, that's what's been driving her. And all of a sudden in this moment, she steps into her own and she becomes this incredibly strong and powerful, self-confident woman who's willing to do the impossible, the scary, the life-threatening for the sake of her people, for the sake of saving them. And so at this point, we see Esther come into her own. This is the powerful queen that you would want. This is the confident woman that you need leading you. This is the woman who's willing to sacrifice herself for the good of the greater, even though her husband is willing to sacrifice everybody else for another cup of wine. This is where Esther becomes the strong, confident female leader who's willing to risk everything for her people. Now, remember I said, there's nothing really here that portrays her as obedient to God, and her character doesn't seem to be godly. Well, it isn't godly in any kind of way, but that doesn't change the fact that she's a strong, confident woman and a leader who's willing to risk her life to do the right thing. So here she steps up. Now notice, even though she's still kind of obeying Mordecai, it's not a mindless just obeying him because he told me to do. She is willing to do it on her own. She knows that Mordecai's advice is good, his argument is valid, it's convincing, but she's not like, oh, Mordecai, okay, I'll do it, fine. You're always telling me what to do. This is different. This is, I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do. I'm going to do it because I've determined to do it. This is where she becomes the queen that a queen should be like. In this way, she kind of looks a little like Vashti. Vashti was confident as a woman and queen that she says, I'm not going to let you bring me in and flaunt me for your own pleasure. That's a strong, confident woman. Unfortunately, she died as a result of it. Now, Esther is going to say, I'm not letting you go in just to manipulate me and move me around as you kill all my people. I'm going to go in and do something about it, which could lead to her death. But she's not going to die. And the only difference really is God's behind this one. God's behind this one. So chapter 5, verse 1. It so happened that on the third day, Esther put on her royal attire and stood in the inner court of the palace, opposite the king's quarters. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the palace, opposite the entrance. Okay, so this is we're one step away from point of no return. If this was a Hollywood movie, the camera would be going back and the big chamber and the music would begin to crescendo and you just feel this drama as she prepared herself for this. When the king saw Queen Esther, Esther standing in the court, she met with his approval and the king extended to Esther the gold scepter that was in his hand, and Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. And if the narrator were honest, with a deep sea of sigh of relief, and like, oh my gosh, I made it. 
The king said to her, What is on your mind, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even as much as half the kingdom will be given to you. He must really like her. Maybe he's just overly distracted with his other forms of entertainment, that he hasn't been thinking about her for 30 days. But when he sees her, not only does he not kill her, not is he annoyed with vexed anger, but he says, I'll give you anything even up to half the kingdom. That's a huge offer. That's a huge offer. Esther replied, if the king is so inclined, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. The king replied, find Haman quickly so he can do as Esther requests. So the king and Haman went to the banquet and Esther had prepared. And while at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your request? So the queen invites him to a banquet because we all know how much he likes banquets. And so we, we bring the king to a banquet. We bring Haman to the banquet. And we're going to hash this out, right? These are the two guys that are responsible for the extermination of her people. And she wants them both together so we can hash this out. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther prepared. Or so what is your request? It shall be given to you. What is your petition? Ask as much as half the kingdom and it shall be done. And Esther responded, my request and my petition is this. If I have found favor in the king's sight, and if the king is inclined to grant my request and to perform my petition, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for them. At that time, I will do as the king wishes. On the surface, it really feels like Esther's copping out. Okay, it's like that, that guy who really wants to ask that girl out on the date, and he has all these things perfectly arranged, and then he gets to her face to face, and his knees just start knocking, and he chickens out, and then he tries again another day, and he just, right, right? Those are like the stupid male comedies. And so the, that's the idea. So it's like, why didn't she ask right then and there? He's looking right at her. His mood is good. This is the moment to seize it. Just say, I don't want you to kill all my people. I'm Jewish. He's in a good mood right then. Instead, she invites him to a banquet and Haman. And you think, okay, well, she wants Haman to be there so that they can hash this out. And he says, okay, what is it you want? I'll give you anything you want. And you're like, she's about ready to ask. And she gets really scared and says, no, let's just do another banquet. Now, that's not at all what's going on. Okay, Because as you keep reading this, the narrator doesn't say anything about her being fear, copping out. And nothing, and even when she gets to the second banquet and starts laying out her request, it's very well thought out. The words that she picks are very well thought out. Nothing in this story suggests that she's just getting afraid and copping out. She knows what she's doing. Esther is very intelligent. And it all hinges on the fact that they haven't seen each other for 30 days. And she is going to ask him to go against his vice regent and to go against a law that cannot be overturned. So the odds are against her. She's already overcome somehow by the grace of God, the odds of not being killed by coming to his presence uninvited. But she's about ready to say, I'm a Jew who's supposed to die. He could say, oh my gosh, you lied to me. I didn't know you were a Jew all this time. Well, then you should die. So that's a huge risk. She's about ready to ask him to go against the law that cannot be overturned. He can't do that. He doesn't have that much power as a king. And she's about ready to pit herself against his vice regent, his favorite guy friend, the guy that he's given absolute power and thrown his signet ring to and said, do whatever you want. 
the odds are absolutely against her. And she's just going to go in on the idea like, oh, hey, I really like you today. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Well, he doesn't have to honor that promise. He's a king. So she knows that there's incredible odds against her. And what she does know is that she, he did not marry her for a relationship and for who she is. And he hasn't seen or spent time with her for the last 30 days. And all intents and purposes, we could assume very rationally that he doesn't even really know who she is. Right? I mean, not like doesn't know who she is, like who her name is, but what, who she's like, her personality, her dreams, her fears, her, her hobbies, her interests, those kind of stuff. He may not know any of that stuff. What is she trying to do? She's trying to build a connection. She's trying to build a connection. Everything. You guys, everybody who's ever been married or anybody who's ever had friends for a long period of time, you need to be connected. In order to have an authentic relationship, in order to, to hash out difficult problems with life, you need to be connected. And that requires spending time and being emotionally vulnerable and open with each other. And so this is what she's going to do. She's going to have a banquet and then another banquet. And they're going to talk and they're going to have fun, and they're going to talk about life, and she's going to build an emotional connection with him, and she's going to remind him why she, he married her, and then some of what more she has to herself other than just good looks and good in bed. And so this is what she's doing. She's developing a connection. And wine helps people make them more a little relaxed and favorable and that kind of stuff. As she's doing this, she's building connection. So as that connection gets deeper and stronger and they spend more time together, then the odds that she's against seems so less overwhelming. Okay, if you've ever been in a relationship long enough, you know what it's like to make financial decisions and decisions about what to do with the kids and how to handle the house when you're not very well connected. And then when you're really well connected, you know how much way more smoothly it goes and how you're way more on the same page with each other and way more compassionate and understanding and all that kind of stuff. And we're going to make a major decision about how not to exterminate the entire Jewish people group, even though his favorite man wants that and the law says it. She needs a connection. She needs a connection. He needs a connection. So she asked for another banquet. Now we come to Haman, verse 9. Now Haman went forth that day pleased and very much encouraged, but when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, he did not rise nor tremble in his presence. Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai, but Haman restrained himself and went on to his home. Haman just got invited to a banquet by the king, queen, and the king was there. This is like the most honored thing that you could be invited to. Both the king and the queen want you there. And you're at this banquet. And the queen likes you so much that she's inviting you to the banquet the next day again. And you've had a conversation with her. And you've had a conversation with the king. And these are people that you know. And you, they like you in your shallow world. And, they, and, and this is your world. And you're on your way home. And you're on the t- cloud nine, so to speak. And you see some random guy that you barely know. You only know that his name's Mordecai is a Jew. And he doesn't look at you with respect. And it just ruins everything for you. Absolutely everything for you. Once again, 
I can kind of understand that on a knee-jerk reaction, like, yes, that's going to stay with me. But then on the rest of the way home, some filtering should be happening. And you should, you know what? I don't even know that person. I don't even know why they were glaring at me. Maybe they were just really tired and angry or whatever. It's like You start filtering things. He can't do that. So he goes home and he tells his wife. He then sent for his friends to join him. He invites his friends over to his house so he can complain about how horrible Mordecai is. Haman then recounted to them his, fab- his fabulous wealth, his many sons, and how the king had magnified him and exalted him over the king's offer, other officials and servants. And Haman said, Furthermore, Queen Esther invited only me to the company of the king to the banquet that she prepared. And also tomorrow I'm invited along with the king. He invites him over just to brag about how awesome he is. This isn't like, hey, friends, come over. I just got promoted. Let's celebrate together. Okay, that's totally legit. If you're excited and super happy and you want to celebrate and you bring friends over, that's not bragging. That's not shallow and that kind of stuff. That's just you're really excited and you want friends to join you. But when you have to remind your friends of how powerful you are, they already know that, of how many sons you have, okay? (laughs) If they're your friends, they already know that. That's pride. And that's just straight up bragging. So he literally brought his friends over to brag about how awesome he is. But he's going to add this. This is one of the most depressing statements in the Bible. Yet all of this fails to satisfy me so long as I have to see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. That's horribly depressing. Hey guys, I have this amazing wife. And she's amazing with as a wife and as a mother of my kids. And I have these, I have like seven kids and they're vibrant and they're healthy and I love them. We hang out together a lot and we do things. And I have this incredible job that is just incredibly fulfilling and gives me lots of power. And I have all this money and all this kind of stuff. And I have big houses and I just got invited to the biggest shinding that there is possibly to be happening in their cumbering. Yet none of this can satisfy me in any kind of a way as long as that random guy over there in the street corner doesn't bow down to me. That's horribly sad. And you know how insulting that is to your wife? Like, wife, all of who you are is nothing and cannot satisfy me in any kind of a way as long as that guy that I pass on the way to work every single day doesn't bow down to me. That's insulting. That's insulting to everything around you. It's absolutely depressing for him as an individual and like i said i can kind of understand this okay i mean it's easy to get like when random people just insult you or get angry at you or refuse to do like that that affects you uh, if it doesn't affect you like that's that's normal we're humans we're emotional we're meant we're, we're, we're meant to connect to people and when people don't connect as as distant as they are it's going to affect you a little bit but the fact that it stays with you that long and it can un- overturn all the other things that you have in your life. And it literally brings, nothing in your life brings any kind of meaning whatsoever. As long as that thing exists over there. That's horribly depressing. And yet this guy is the second most powerful person in the kingdom. It's the second most powerful person in the kingdom. There's this book called Search for Significance. I don't know if you ever, it's by Robert McGee. It's a really good book. It takes you through like the, the different things that we do to find our significance in life. And there's the, and we usually fit into four categories 
Um, we had this, our, we find our significance in becoming powerful or successful or making lots of my success in some kind of way. I'm successful as a father. I'm successful as a businessman. I'm successful as whatever. Or you find your significance in being accepted and people liking you and your fear is rejection. Or you find your significance in um, trying to just not feel shame. Like what's just driving is you just don't want to feel shame. You don't want to be eaten up with it. We, we're all driven by something. And, every, and everything that we're doing is trying, we're trying to find our significance in pursuing this thing. If it's not Christ, it's one of these things. And, and this is what it is. It's power. For him, it's that success. And it's not the acceptance of his wife and kids. They don't, that acceptance doesn't matter. If, you, if your search for significance is you need to be successful, then whether your wife and kids and friends accept you or reject you doesn't really bother you that much. Whether you're getting promoted at work, whether people are respecting you or not, whether people think you're great at work or in whatever job you do, that's what matters to you. And you're willing to throw your acceptance and rejection away for the sake of success because that's the thing that drives you the most. Now, some people can be a little bit of both and that kind of stuff, but there's usually one that really drives us and we're willing to sacrifice the others. And this is him. I'm willing to throw everything I have out the window just for that one man to respect me. Everybody has to respect me. Everybody has to see me as successful. If they don't, then I have no meaning in life. And if yours is the fear of rejection, then you really are bothered when people don't like you. Uh, you, don't, you don't even care about success, but you want people to like you. And that drives you nuts. And so this is his. This is his. Now, notice here, the thing that's interesting here is this is the only character in the entire Bible that we're given his thoughts and his motivations. And like I said, that's, I think that's so interesting. We have been through several books of the Bible so far. And major characters, Abraham, David, incredibly godly people, Daniel, Nehemiah. But we're not given their motivations or thoughts ever. And yet one of the most deplorable, evil, irrational men in the entire Bible, we're given his thoughts and his motivations. And I think that's interesting. And I think what God is trying to do is not only just set up this government as look, this government is deplorable. This government has the wrong goals and desires. This government is corrupt. But look at the kind of people that make this government. This is why you can't trust institutions because they're made up like people like this. But the thing is, too, is letting you know that these people are dangerous. These people are dangerous. And this is what's driving them. What's driving them is if they don't have God, then something else becomes their God. And for him, it's not an idol knows that there's no idol in the picture here. Now, I'm not saying that he's not an idolater. He's a Persian. He probably is. Well, he definitely is. But what God is highlighting at this moment is not all the idols that we've been used to over and over and over again. His idol is success and respect. And he's willing to kill for it. In the First Testament, the Canaanites were willing to sacrifice their children for their gods. Haman is willing to sacrifice his family and children for his God of success. And I think what God is saying here is what ultimately is behind these gods is these deep desires. Why do you pursue a God that is a sexual God? Because that's your desire inward. 
Why do you pursue God like a storm God is absolutely powerful and can destroy people all the time? Because that's what you worship is power. And these gods just represent our basic desires in our heart. And those desires that you pursue and put above God, that is your God. And this is what's driving him. And when it drives you that powerfully, there's nothing that you're not willing to do in order to satisfy that desire. There's nothing you're not willing to do in order to satisfy that desire. And the more power that you have, the more you're able to satisfy that desire. And the more power you have, the more disconnected from the everyday normal people in the culture you become, and the more people you're willing to sacrifice in order to satisfy that power. And so these are the two great dangers, is that power makes you more likely to satisfy your desires and more likely to sacrifice other things for your desire. And we see that. We see that all the time. Think of the thing, your most deplorable characteristic, and the thing that without Christ drives you the most, and then give yourself tons of power, and that's who you'll become without Christ. That's who you'll become without Christ. With power, there's no obstacles. Many of us don't destroy our lives horribly, miserably with our unchrist or ungodliness because we're too poor and too weak in a, phys- in a power sense to really destroy ourselves completely. That's why people who are in power fall so much harder because they have been able to really pursue it that much. And so this is what God is setting up. He's giving you insights into the human heart and what that heart looks like when it has power. Verse 14, Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have gallows 75 feet or an impaling pole built in the morning. Tell the king of Mordecai should be hanged on it and then go to the king to the banquet contented. It seemed like a good idea to Haman, so he had the impelling poles built. You know what most people would say is like, if you're a Christian, they're like, you know what? You should spend time praying. You should go on a retreat or something. If they're a non-Christian, they're like, you know what? You should go get a massage. Go to a sauna, something like that. Go on vacation. Go golfing or something. No, this wife, this wife says, you know what? Tomorrow morning, on your way to work, just impale Mordecai. That will make you feel better. There's something wrong with people. The more and more powerful you become, the more illogical and callous you become when it becomes to deal with things. It's just There are exceptions. But remember, even David, who was a man after God's own heart, still violated a woman and killed her husband and a whole bunch of soldiers to cover it up and all that kind of stuff just to satisfy a desire that he had that night. Even a man after God's own heart can do some of the most deplorable evils that there are just to satisfy themselves when they have unchecked power. When they unchecked power. This is why Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except for God. On my principal, he always says this like every once in a while. He'll be like, you know, Corey, this kid over here, he, he is a good kid after all. Well, you know what I mean. He's not really good. He deserves, he's an absolutely evil sinner, deserves to go to hell. But in a relativistic sense, he's a good kid. So, but that's like always what he says. Like, because it, that's, that's Buzz with his good theology. Like, <laughs> well, relatively speaking, he's a good kid. 
These are 75 feet high. Very, very, very unlikely that they have built this seven and a half story tall pole that they're going to toss Mordecai up onto and impale him. That is not likely. Most likely the 75 feet includes the hill that it's on. A lot of times these impaling poles or crucifixion crosses would be put on the side of the road or on top of a hill for everybody to see. They, they, these are billboards. They're not just executions. They're billboards for everybody to see. We already talked about this, but it's everybody saying, see this? Don't be like that. Okay? It's like those giant billboards are like, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Don't do this. So this is, this is you. This is you on an impaling pole. Don't do that. Don't, don't rebel. Don't question the government like this. That's the idea. So the hill probably is what adds the 75 feet to it. 